0: Book
2: Buzz, HarperCollins Book Buzz. Check it out.
1: Do, 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 do. Book Buzz, Harper Collins Book Buzz.
0: Brought to you by Library
2: Love Fest.
0: Hey, it's Virginia from the Library Love Fest team. Uh, this is a special episode of Editors Unedited. We have Mickey Maudlin with us, Senior VP and Senior Editor at Harper One, which is an imprint of HarperCollins. And um, he will be in conversation today with Marianne O'Hara, who is the author of Cascade. And she's publishing a memoir in April called Little Matches, uh, which is a really powerful uh, story of um, a mother's grief over the loss of her adult child. And we're really looking forward to this conversation. So with that, I will hand it off to Mickey and Marianne for uh, what will undoubtedly be a very powerful conversation. Mickey?
2: Wow, thanks for that, uh, Virginia. The, uh, I'm on the spot, I have to be powerful. Marianne, I, I, I don't know about you, but when I hear your book described as a grief memoir, I just feel like it's so much more than that, that that puts it in a little niche. Um, mm-hmm. and But at, in a sense, that is the central story, um, but it's also uh, about so much more. Can you just take a couple minutes and set the scene of like kind of Caitlin, cystic fibrosis and everything, uh, just kind of the, The overall arch of the story.
1: The story is really uh, me having an existential crisis after the loss of Caitlin and looking for meaning in life, which has kind of been my lifelong obsession anyway. I've always been a bit obsessed with the mystery of our existence within time. And my earlier writing was all fiction and explored the idea of you know what lost, what's important. This, after losing Caitlin, nothing seemed important anymore. And the only thing that helped was writing. Now, so the arc of the book is really me looking for answers to the big life questions and coming to some conclusions by the end of the book. What's really interesting is it's not really a grief book. Of course there is grief in it, but what is really great about you, Mickey, is that you got the right subtitle for the book. I had all these convoluted long phrase subtitles and you came up with a memoir of grief and light. And that really says it all. And that's when I talk about the book, I wanna talk about it in, the, in that way, that humans seek balance always nature seeks balance, humans seek balance and grief seeks light. And I think that the grief that I experienced is not unique and our story is universal. And Caitlin is Caitlin of course in such in a unique and wonderful way but she stands for for everybody. And she also, um, my, my loss is, is a universal loss in so many ways because humans, lose hard all the time. Um, one of my favorite lines from a poem is, um, all love is ill star because all is made of time, Octavio Paz, and that's just stayed in my head for my whole life.
2: Um, not to correct the author, but a big part of the book is uh, writing uh, about your experience before Caitlin died in their struggle of being a mother of uh, a child with a a, a serious illness. Mm -hmm. Um, And part of the genesis of the book was uh, a popular blog you started during that process. What what prompted you to start kind of publicly journaling in uh, the Nine Lives Notes uh, blog?
1: Sure, we were sent, we had to go to Pittsburgh from Boston to wait for Caitlin's transplant for a bunch of reasons. And once we were there, the easiest way for me to be in touch with everyone who wanted to know what was going on was for me to just put up a blog post. We're here. Nothing's happening. We're here. We're still waiting. Because really, it was two and a half years of waiting, and there wasn't much to say. And every once in a while, I would put up a post just to let people know what was going on. And then when she got so sick, and the need for lungs became so desperate, and we were in such a critical space that I started blogging all the time because I just wanted anyone who could help to help. I wanted real real help so that people would know if, if somebody lost somebody, they would know that somebody was in desperate need of lungs in Pittsburgh. And also I wanted any kind of universal energy prayers, all of it, I wanted all of it directed toward Caitlin. And I found that when I sort of let go I had never really wanted to write the personal at all. But when I let go and just was very honest, people really responded. And after the loss of Caitlin, the only thing that helped was writing on that blog because, and I, writing in my journal didn't help. Writing for myself didn't help. It was writing to people because they were responding. And I felt like I was communicating and I felt like I wasn't alone with this horrible, horrible grief and fear and
2: uh, I was curious about the interactivity of the blog, but there were, at some point it became more popular in the sense that more than just friends and family were reading it. Um, did that make you, what effect did that have on the, your experiences itself? Did it make you more conscious of what you're going through? Did you think, I just think sometimes when we get out of the usual track, uh, it causes us to think what's happening. And I'm wondering if that was one of those experiences and deepened your experience of what you were going through.
1: It made me, we were so inside that that world. I don't know how much time any of you have ever spent in a hospital. But when you're there, it's like its own little cocoon. And a hospital has its own rhythms. And we were so inside that ICU world that I was writing, thinking I was writing to friends and family And yet people were talking and talking and communicating and tweeting. And this was, and suddenly I looked and we had had, you know, thousands of visitors in just the last couple of hours. And I realized that other people were paying attention. I was getting messages from strangers and it made me realize, yes, it took me outside of it a little bit. It made me realize how desperate and serious it really was. Even though I knew it was, it made it, I realized we were those, we were that, that tragic Christmas story that year
2: no that makes sense one of the things I love about the book and just to give people background Caitlin I think was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis when she's around three three or four
1: yeah two,
2: two Two. and um uh one of the things that was haunting it was the idea that uh they said this could be something that she can be it's a cystic fibrosis disease in the lungs and it depends on how long it takes for the lungs to deteriorate and she could live a long life or a very short life and that question mark over her, uh, mm-hmm. her whole life um uh that struck me um as just a hard thing to live with a, a shadow uh, over your shoulder the whole time but uh one of the things i love about the book and caitlin dies uh, she's 33 when she passes she is such a full character and participant in the book. And uh, you often described her as an old soul. We get, and, and throughout the book, we get quotes from you know emails, things she writes or journals, uh, et cetera. So she really, her persona comes through. Um, what do you think contributed to her becoming an old soul? Uh, was it the illness that just growing up in that context? Because it, it really does seem like she was a source of wisdom.
1: She really was. and. It seems that a lot of kids who grow up with serious illness are old before their time and wise. I think she would have been a pretty smart, cool character anyway, but really having to deal with the stuff she had to deal with from the very beginning just made her, as she puts it herself in one of the parts that's in the book is um, she learned to zoom out and to picture herself like up high above the planet looking down and realizing I'm just a small part of a, a small lifetime of humans on a planet. And it gave her this ability to sort of step back and look at what was really important. And, and that being said, she, you know, she was kind of wild too. She loved partying and living and she really appreciated life.
2: Which yes. Is- which is that great. Comes through, that comes through very clearly. I love that. Definitely. What's that, what's that one? Can you tell that one story where she says, um, let's say, if you run away, you'll be a bad girl. And she.
1: Oh, um, she was. Yeah.
2: <laughs> so that was
1: That's the kind of kid she was. I would put her down and say, no, don't do that. And she would do it. And I'd put her down at the airport. And I say, now stay right there. And she'd go running away, saying, "I'm a bad girl." <laughs> <laughs>
2: <laughs> That—that's what I loved about it. It's not that she was disobedient, but she knew, yeah. <laughs> "You do this, I'm a bad girl. I, I'm a bad girl." Oh, that's so funny.
1: Yeah, she uh, was—he was tough, but she was, she was great. Uh, we always got along really well, fortunately.
2: <laughs> uh, it seems like you passed on pretty early on. Uh, your interest in the big questions to her, and she uh, definitely had that as well. Um, how did that uh, interest grow and develop as a as a partnership in what you did together?
1: Well, we did so much together. We were really close, and because I only had one child too, we just seemed to—I don't—we gelled. We we always got along really well. But in the early days, like I, I wanted her to question whether there was more to life than this life, but I didn't want to give her, I had been raised Catholic and I just didn't like the way women were treated in the Catholic church. So I didn't really want to raise a daughter Catholic. So I took her to a non-denominational church and then not long into that, the pastor was arrested for rape. And so, and at the same time she was saying, mommy, I want to be Jewish. And I was like, ah, so we read a lot of books and we talked a lot. That was kind of the spiritual religious upbringing and that was kind of it for a long time and then when she got older she was the one who got interested in souls and soul readings and astrology and reincarnation research etc and then i was like oh what are you reading and i got interested we both did in a bemused kind of way nothing was really at stake at that point
2: yeah, but you, you strike me as a uh, kind of a tough, realist, good that Boston Irish background. The, uh, uh, and you face hard things head on, uh, but you interact with many psychics in the book, uh, and they turned out to be very positively. Um, how did you come to be more open to uh, spiritual teachers like that?
1: Well, it was kind of interesting that I I mentioned in the book that one day I was just at a a regular appointment and somebody was reading uh, Dr. Brian Weiss's book on reincarnation. And I think if anyone's going to convince you, it's probably him because he has the credentials, you know, and he writes in a way that if you believe him, then it's kind of true that we are all essentially souls who live many lives. So I, I felt like I had sort of stumbled on that book by divine um, fortune, because Caitlin was starting to get sicker. She was probably around 19 when I read that book and I gifted it to her, just hoping it would make her feel better. And it made me feel better. While I was reading it, I could believe him and, um, you know. and then you put a book aside and you think, well, Maybe it's all just nothing, but I just felt like it gave Caitlin some comfort. It gave a whole bunch of people in my circle ended up reading and it gave us all a lot of comfort. And then after her passing, I I was probably more of a skeptic than I had ever, ever been because it really just seemed impossible that any part of her could still exist. And the idea of consciousness existing after death seemed like wishful thinking even though at the same time I look at us, these humans living, talking, existing, we didn't make it happen. Everything is so magical and beautiful in this world. Like, why is it such a big stretch to believe that there's at least one other level higher than this? So I I get that too. And I think that there, there are a lot of interesting questions to be asked and a lot of people. And people of science have asked them, and it's just not really part of our culture and our conversation and our culture to talk about these things without feeling embarrassed. And that's one thing I noticed when I started talking about signs on the blog, the most unlikely people would start responding to me and saying, I've had things like that happen, and I don't know how to explain it. And people keep quiet. And then there are the people who are you know, obvious frauds and there are the people who are kind of goofy and will believe anything. So it's, it's a funny conversation to have, but I think it's a very worthy conversation. And in this book, I wanted to sort of present what happened and not really interpret, let people decide for themselves. And I wanted to ask questions that I think are worth talking about.
2: Um not to push you too much on this but there is a couple key points where you went to uh, a psychic or you and Caitlin went to a psychic and it was very meaningful and very helpful do you, do you see them as uh having special gifts that um uh, are in touch with the other world
1: yes what's good too is in this country there is a a group called the forever family foundation which is kind of a funny little name but it's a very serious and um, heartfelt group where they have they they help families in bereavement and they have blind tested mediums and those mediums um, offer their services free of charge to families that are grieving and blind testing is um, you can read about it it's Really interesting the way they do it, and these people definitely have some kind of psychic ability. And what's interesting is, I also mentioned this neuropsychologist in the book who has mapped some of their brains, and the, the brain activity is just different in the mediumistic brain when they're reading than in a normal human brain when it's you know existing and awake. So, that's all very interesting. There is some science there and they can talk about it better than I can, but it's definitely there. And the other thing is, Caitlin has a cousin in Ireland who is one of these people and um, her, she is turning 33 in April and her gifts, as often happens, her gifts have grown over the years. When she was a child, she had the so-called imaginary friends and, then, when she was a teenager, she didn't want anything to do with any of that. And she got into her 20s. And it's, it's very powerful. I, I mean, she, so I, I feel like I know her. I know her so personally that I know she's the real thing. And, you know, she, one day she was actually at my house in, in, in Massachusetts and she was doing some work on me. And I was lying in, I have this thing in Caitlin's bedroom, Caitlin's old bedroom. And I looked and she was. I was like, what is she doing? She's pressing on my sternum so hard I can't even breathe. And I opened my eyes and her hands were way above my sternum. It was pretty cool. Wow. That's, just like, that's just an example of how some physical stuff can happen. Never mind the, men, the mental messages, et cetera, that come. And, and I must say, I get, I get crazy messages all the time. That can only be from Kaylin. I mean, it's like insane. Yeah.
2: Um, but that is one of the themes that underlined <laughs> the book: uh, is yeah. uh, do souls exist and do they? Um, can we communicate them? Can we uh, interact uh, after uh, we're parted? Um, I just think that the culture. I, I've, as you know, I worked in worked in religious publishing for over thirty years, and. Um, I just feel like the culture is so schizophrenic in the sense of uh, vast majority of people believe God exists, that spiritual matters are uh, real, uh, and yet when it comes to psychic and other phenomena that don't fit a neat little, mm-hmm. um, that we almost like we like the idea of belief in God, but we're very uncomfortable with the idea that any spiritual realities show up in the world, even though that's what we believe.
1: I think that's so funny. Uh,
2: it is. And I think it's, it's fun how that kind of comes out in a way that's not evangelistic in your book, but in a sense of really showing how someone uh, finds some comfort in unexpected places. Uh, and uh, I think it was a, a powerful part of the book is your search for those uh, those sort of big questions, as you said, and the realities that come there. Um, One aspect of uh, Caitlin's personality is her uh, capacity for fun and joy. She seemed like just a happy person uh, a lot of the time. Uh, I think uh, many people who are anxious and fearful would be comforted by and interested in to know how she managed kind of not to be defined by her illness. Uh, What are your thoughts?
1: We decided early on that she was not going to be defined by CF at all. And at the same time, we were not going to deny that she had CF and we were going to do everything we could to keep her well and healthy and, and whole. And that included um, treating her like a normal kid, which for the most part, CF is one of those diseases. If you're not really in crisis or you, your lung disease hasn't progressed too much, you you do present normally and you can live normally. When she was Really young, like in second grade, she was the fastest runner on the team. You know, um, even in college, she still she went to college in D.C. in the beginning, and she used to run with a guy like down to the Capitol, up to the Lincoln Memorial, and had no problem. A couple of years later, she couldn't do that at all. And of course, by the time we ended up in Pittsburgh, she was reluctantly using a wheelchair most of the time—not to walk around the house, but whenever we went out, I had to push her in the wheelchair. So she was able to live normally for a really long time, but there's a really powerful part in the book where she writes to an old friend from elementary school and they have reconnected later on. And she's explaining what it was like in her twenties when she looked completely normal, but she couldn't do the things that her friends could do. And she would desperately wish everyone would want to take a cab when everyone would be like, Oh, it's just two blocks down the street. And for her two blocks was really a trek and Another part I talk about is we were sitting in Pittsburgh one day looking at photographs on her computer. And she said, I can, I can remember how I felt in every single photograph. And there was one down on Cape Cod. And she said, I just wanted to run down and dance around in the sand like everyone else. But all I could think of was like, how will I climb back up that big dune? So it was always weighing. And she, she believed in living for sure. So it it was just always weighing, do I do the things I want to do, even though I know I'm going to suffer, and then maybe I won't be able to do the thing I want to do in two weeks. It was always balance, always, but she she kept it very much inside of herself. One of her good friends just read um, one of the galleys, and she said, God, this makes me miss her so much, and it also makes me feel so bad that I never realized just how bad it was for her. And I said, well, she didn't want you to know how bad it was right. for her. Uh,
2: she also had that term that you quote often, uh, but I, I think is so helpful and meaningful, encouraging to me, uh, is the ferocious positivity.
1: Yeah.
2: Uh, what did she mean by that?
1: Positivity, even in the face of overwhelming negativity even if it was almost despairing and black, if there's a little chink of light, if there's a little match that you can light, light that match and have that hope. Because crazy miracle stories do happen. And I talk about that when we first went to Pittsburgh and they we had orientation week and this, this man was the speaker. And, it's in the book, but like everything went wrong with this guy. And he had one of the first lung transplants ever. He almost died numerous times. And by the time we saw him, a couple of decades had passed. He was in his sixties. He was golfing every day. You know, you just don't really know what's going to happen in this life. So why not be positive? <laughs> that that was sort of my philosophy, her philosophy. And by the time she was in the hospital and really sick, she was like, I want that. Positivity, and I'm serious, guys. I want it.
2: Yeah, that—that's what struck me about that positivity. It was a positivity that um, faced into also all the hard things. Um, it wasn't like just let's ignore exactly. everything. That-
1: right, or let's just pretend everything's great. Or if we manifest it to be positive and everything's great, it will be. It was acknowledging the dark and the hard and at the same time seeking that balance that I was talking about earlier.
2: Um, You have a a very strong sense of purpose in letting people know about this book. You basically told us um, you'd be willing to go anywhere to talk about this book. Um, What's behind that mission? What do you want people to take away from the book?
1: I love that people are telling me it's comforting. A writer that I'm going to do a um, conversation with when it comes out, read it last week. And she said, I read this book as if my soul depended on it. I couldn't put it down. And that's the kind of reaction I love hearing because it is a comforting book. It's an inspiring book. And I give a lot of that credit to my daughter. Some of her writings are profound in there and really helpful instructions for living, for living well.
2: Uh, I, the only way, I, I would correct you in one way and that a lot of your writings is very uh, inspirational you. and wise and comforting as well, uh, but I agree about Caitlin's uh, writing. Uh, what about today? Do you still sense Caitlin? I mean, what describe your relationship with Caitlin today?
1: It's interesting. I, 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 I wish I was like my niece and the mediums who have been blind tested and really know she's there. Um, but I do feel her. I was in Salisbury Cathedral, a place we had wanted to go to. One of the last books she read was one of this big book about Salisbury Cathedral, a historical piece of fiction. She never got to finish it. She was reading it in the hospital and I wanted we had wanted to go there. So I was there with my husband after her passing and I suddenly felt this feeling like electrified bubble wrap on the left side of my head. It was so strong and I just knew it was her. I, it was like this knowing that's Caitlin. And since then I get that feeling a lot. And in the beginning I did get worried and I asked my doctor about it because I was afraid something was wrong with my brain, but my brain is fine. And I get this feeling when I know that I'm getting some kind of communication from Caitlin and anyway, and, and, and I get the hawks. The hawks are really crazy. Um, they were happening before her passing. I didn't know what the heck was happening. I thought they were signs that something that it was all going to be good. My husband and I left the hospital one day and a, a hawk flew right up at our windshield. I thought it was gonna smash into us. And I've, I've had a lot of hawk experiences and I continue to have them. I had two last week that were so crazy. And actually, you know, these signs are just so crazy. Mickey. The day I sent you, it was back in June. I sent you the edits. They were sort of the final edits. And I went outside and I sat on my patio and it was a beautiful day. And I turned on the music and I thought, I'm, go- I'm going to listen to Kaylin's favorite song, even though I know I'm going to cry. And i have been sitting out there for 20 minutes and I turned on the music. I turned on the Joni Mitchell Refuge of the Roads song and Hawk comes down. I have a video of it. Hawk comes down, starts swooping over the river and like flaps its arm. And I I just had the chills. I have them just now talking about it. And it was pretty cool.
2: That's a beautiful story. If it helped, just know that I see a Hawk probably once every four years. So uh, something is special happening uh, with you.
1: Anyway, yeah Seahawks anyway
2: I um this has been great I've really enjoyed talking with you and this is Marian O'Hara who is the author of Little Matches a memoir of grief and light and it comes out April 20th 2021 and I think anybody uh would enjoy reading it because it's really about life the more than grief
1: definitely and how to live it thank exactly. you so much This was great. Thank you very much. I'm really excited for everyone to read it. Thank you for listening to the Library Love Fest podcast. For more information on this week's
0: episode, go to librarylovefest.com. Enjoying the show? We would love to hear what you think. Find us on Facebook and Twitter at Library Love Fest and on Instagram at Harper Library. Be sure to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts and share the show with a friend. Lastly, if you enjoy our show, we bet you'll enjoy all of the other podcasts from HarperCollins Publishers. Find a list of shows at harpercollins.com forward slash podcast. See you next week.